Hi folks, great to have you connecting online with us as we spend a few moments now gathering around God's Word, an amazing story that we're going to look at today. We've been looking at the book of Joshua last week. Uh, I started looking at the book of Joshua, which tells the story of the conquest of the promised land. Of course, the Israelites come out of Egypt, amazing story of the exodus of Egypt, and God leads them uh, to conquer this area known as the promised land. Now, for a conquest story, this book begins in a very curious way. After the account of Joshua's commission, we have a whole chapter devoted to telling how a Canaanite prostitute Rahab and her family were saved from the oncoming destruction of Jericho. Now, when seemingly incidental details like this are given so much space in this ancient text, you have to wonder why was this deemed so important? Isn't this a story about conquest? Well, what has this detail got to do with anything? Well, while it's true that the book of Joshua is the story of military conquest, the Bible is the story of salvation. So at each stage, particularly when we come to stories that seem preoccupied with judgment rather than salvation, we're always given something to remind us of the bigger picture of where all this is going. So for example, the story of the great flood in Genesis 6 to 8, our attention is largely drawn to the fact that God saves Noah and his family. When God brings the 10 plagues on Egypt, He saves the Israelites. Salvation always becomes the focal theme as a reminder that as Paul says in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4, God, our Saviour, wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And as Peter says in 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, the Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Repentance meaning turning from walking away from God, turning to God. This is the heart of God for all people all the time. This is the end to which God works. What is God doing in the world right now? He is saving people. Now, if you're new to the Christian faith, you may have heard Christians talk about being saved. And even now you might be listening to this wondering, what, all this, what is all this talk about being saved? About what, what is it that we need to be saved from? See, most people don't feel any pressing need to be saved from anything. I mean, maybe your business needs to be saved. Maybe your job, maybe your marriage needs to be saved. But you may not see yourself as needing salvation as such. Well, actually, the first thing that we need to be saved from is the belief that we don't need to be saved from anything. So let me take a few moments to briefly explain this, and then we'll go ahead and look at this very intriguing story in Joshua chapter 2. The most important thing in life, 
let's just get the bigger picture. It's good to take, you know, we get so caught up in the details of life. We need a moment to think about the big picture. What is this all about? Now, the most important thing in life is your relationship with God, the status of your relationship with God. How is it between you and God? Are you letting God be God to you? Or have you denied God His divine prerogative in your life? That is the most important question of life. And because God is, well, God, if your life is in any way in conflict with God, this must automatically be your ultimate concern. This, by the way, has very little to do with whether you consider yourself a good person or not. I'm sure you're all wonderful people and doing the best to live lives of integrity and and kindness to others, and that's great. But the question is, who is setting the agenda for your life? Whose purpose are you serving? Yours or God's? Are you letting God be your God. See, God has an absolute claim on your life. Are you you answering to that claim and serving God's purpose? If not, then you are in conflict with God. And this brings the great shadow of condemnation over your life and spiritual discordance into your spirit. To live this way and not feel that discordance is the most concerning situation to be in because it means that you've lost all spiritual sensitivity. As, I said, as I've said many times, the worst thing that can happen to you is you end up living happily without God. Now, if my life is in conflict with God, I want to feel it because one day we will have to stand before God to give an account of our lives and we will receive what we chose. We will receive what we chose. If it's to live without God, then it will mean being cut off from God and God's goodness. Then you may not feel the pain of your discordance with God now, but you will then. And that, folks, is the very definition of hell. Now, I hesitate very much to use the word hell because of the abundance of distorting mythology that surrounds this idea. Interestingly, mainly imported into the medieval church through ancient Greek religion. We're actually not told a lot, hardly anything in fact, about hell in the Bible, but one thing seems very likely. You will be your worst tormentor. God does not want this for you. Whatever consequence we reap then will be self-inflicted. I say this because often, you know, mention of hell, the very concept, causes people to accuse God of being cruel and harsh. No, no, no. God is gracious and loving. He doesn't want this. What God did want, however, is to empower human beings with the right, in some sense, to self-determine, to choose whether we would accept Him as God or not. 
And because God is just, He is committed to letting each person reap what they sow. I mean, every religion will teach you that. Even a religion like Buddhism that lacks any distinct belief in God will teach you this. Each person will reap what they sow. But here is what no human religion will tell you because it's something that we couldn't know by that irrepressible spiritual awareness that all people have, I think, innately. God has done something in history that means we don't have to reap what we have sowed. Now, how could God do that and still be just? Well, God came to us in Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, is therefore called the Son of God and who suffered and died to pay the penalty for our guilt, to reap in Himself what we sowed. That is the greatest event in history. That is what God did to save us. And that's why the main thing that God is concerned about is saving people. Because having paid such an enormous price, God really wants to get what he paid for, and that is you and me. That, folks, is what salvation means. That is what every story from the story of Noah on his boat to the story of Paul on his boat that uh, Boaz looked at a couple of weeks ago, that's what these stories point to. It all points to what God did in Christ to save us from condemnation and self-inflicted alienation from God. Here it is in John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. The reason why the book of Joshua begins with a story of salvation is to remind us where all of this is going. To remind us of where we are going, to remind you what God is most wanting to do in and through your life. So let's turn to the book of Joshua, whose name, by the way, Joshua, means God saves. Now I explained last week how this military conquest of the land under Joshua prefigures Jesus' conquest, as it were, of the earth. And of course, Jesus' Hebrew name, real Hebrew name, is also Joshua, which means God saves. 
That conquest began with Jesus' life, death and resurrection and continues now as Christ continues to work through the Holy Spirit in the world to fight not a military battle against people, but a spiritual battle against spiritual strongholds for people. Now this will culminate in the future when Christ returns to finally purge the earth to bring about the great final day of judgment and usher in a new heavens and a new earth, the new Eden, which again is prefigured in the promised land of Canaan. Now this pattern of prefiguration actually occurs throughout the Old Testament. We find that Israel is always in some way embodying a prophetic message to the world about the future. Well, today we're focusing, of course, on the story of Rahab and the Israelite spies in Joshua chapter two. So let me tell you this story in outline. I'll pick out some quotes from the text as I go. So Joshua and the rest of Israel are camped on the east side of the Jordan Valley, just northeast of the the Dead Sea. Now, Joshua decides to send two spies ahead to spy out the land, especially Jericho, presumably to report on where and how things are. Now, the spies don't get much further than the fortress town of Jericho, which guarded the road into the land of Canaan. Now, the spies enter Jericho and they go into the home of a prostitute, Rahab, for reasons that the text leaves perhaps tactfully unexplained. Now, some commentators point out that uh, with some validity, I think that this doesn't have to mean that they were there for Rahab's trade. But it's interesting that the text doesn't try to avoid that implication either. The reason being, I think, that the biblical story invariably involves God working his plan of salvation through all the stumbling and fumbling of his very imperfect people. And thank God for that. Anyway, this comes to the attention of the king of Jericho and assuming they're spies, that night he sends for them to be detained and then probably interrogated in an enhanced way, as we say in the civilised world. But Rahab hides the two men up on her roof and she lies to the king's men, telling them that these guys had already left at dusk. Now, this is a very big risk that she's taking. I mean, if she was found out, which she could easily have been, she would have suffered a grisly death. But look, her ruse works and the soldiers rush off in vain to pursue the spies. And we'll pick up the text from there. So this is from Joshua chapter 2 and verse 8. Before the spies lay down for the night, she, Rahab, went up onto the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land. That's a remarkable statement of faith. I know that the Lord has given you this land. That's more faith than a lot of the Israelites had. I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God 
is God in heaven above and on earth below. Amazing confession of faith from Rahab. Verse 12, now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them, that you will save us from death. Well, they agree and they give her the sure sign that she asks. Now the sign to her and particularly to the invading Israelite army would be the hanging of a, star, of a scarlet coloured cord or piece of cloth from the window of her house, which was in the city wall, which would therefore only have been, the, the scarlet cloth only would have been visible then from the outside. Now, given that this scarlet cord was ready to hand, it was probably also the very thing that she used to advertise her trade previously. So, get this. What used to be the symbol of her shame now becomes the symbol of her salvation. Because of course the idea of a scarlet cord hanging from a window that causes judgment to pass over her is very much uh, indicative of the salvation language of the Passover, when the Israelites, of course, were instructed to place the sign of blood over the windows and doors of their houses so that God's judgment would pass over them. The symbol, what used to be the symbol of her shame, now becomes the symbol of her salvation. Isn't that exactly the same with the cross? that in Roman times was a symbol of shame, but because what Jesus Christ did on that cross, shedding his blood for us, becomes the symbol of our salvation. And so it is that Rahab and her family, her whole family was saved as the city was destroyed. And so it is that Rahab and her family were from that time on incorporated into God's people, into God's family. And so it is that Rahab becomes one of the heroes of the faith listed in Hebrews chapter 11. And so it is, and this, this is the best part, and so it is that Rahab becomes, and I don't know if you realise this, that Rahab becomes one of the descendants of Jesus Christ. In the genealogy, at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew in traditional form lists the descendants of Christ down through the male line. But unconventionally, he makes special mention of just four female descendants of Christ. I wonder if you if you know or you can guess who those four people, for those of you who have read the Bible, who those four women 
might be. Well, they are, one, the Canaanite woman, Tamar, who according to Genesis 38, posed as a prostitute to get pregnant by her father-in-law Judah. Number two, Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho. Number three, the Moabite woman, Ruth, after whom the book of Ruth is named. And the probably Jebusite woman, Bathsheba, is fourth, with whom David committed adultery. They're all outsiders. Three of them have some form of shame attached to them. Why does Matthew include these women in his genealogy? That's the sort of thing that would be hidden in genealogical records of important people in the ancient world who would want to claim noble and pure genealogical records. So what's the message? The message, the message is that God is in the business of saving people, of gathering in those who are far away, of gathering in those who are on the outside. Why does the story of the conquest of Canaan begin with this relatively detailed story about a prostitute from Jericho who was saved? And why of all people to be saved, was it a prostitute given the associations of that with Canaanite idolatry and the very kind of impurity that God was warning his people against? Why? Because God is in the business of saving people. This is the same God who says on the lips of Jesus when he was questioned about why he kept hanging out with sinful people, you know, prostitutes and tax collectors, who says in Matthew 5, verse 31, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Who also said in Luke 19, verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save what is lost. Who also told the parable of the lost sheep and the prodigal son in Matthew, in, sorry, in Luke 15 saying, and I tell you in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And remember, repentance doesn't mean get your life together, no repentance. We we can't do that. God knows we can't do that. Repentance means turn around. Stop living without God. Stop going in life. Turn back to God. And God will get your life together because God's already got your life. A number of of months ago, I was out somewhere uh, in the bush, you know, praying around who God might be raising up uh, into leadership and things like that. And I distinctly felt God saying to me, I want people who have lost enough battles to know how the battle is won. I want people 
with enough wounds to know the healing power of the grace of Jesus Christ. I'm looking for the disqualified to qualify. That wasn't the criteria that I was thinking of. And it's not those who wallow in failure, not those who won't see their failure, those who know that they failed, who know that they are unworthy so that God can make them worthy, can place upon them a robe of righteousness. We are the church of the disqualified. Have you failed? Do you feel condemned? Do you feel ashamed? Do you feel disqualified? You know what? You're in the right place. You are just the person that God is looking for. So you're just the person that we're looking for. Come and join the church of the disqualified. You know, the best churches, the best churches draw the worst people. The best churches draw the worst people because God is in the business of saving what is lost. Isn't that an encouragement? And, you know, think about the implications of that. I mean, with the highest concentration of broken people, a church is always going to be a messy crowd with lots of failure as we stumble forwards. And the world is going to look upon us and think us hypocrites. But you see, we're only hypocrites if we only claim to be without sin. And we make no such claim. As John says in 1 John 1, 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We may be a broken lot, but that's the important part right there. The truth, the truth is in us. Like Rahab, we are living testaments to the saving grace of God. Grace means unmerited favour. That's what grace means. I stand before you today, not as a self-made man, but as a God-made person. A person that God has lovingly restored despite my persistent efforts at self-sabotage. By the grace of God, as Paul once said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. The church of the disqualified. The church of those who are alienated and yet are brought near. Of those who were guilty and yet are forgiven. Of those who were broken and yet are being healed. Of those who were condemned but are saved by Jesus Christ. Let me finish by reading the words of Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. Words that are so true of all of the Rahabs out there in the world. Listen to this from Ephesians chapter 2, New Living Translation. Here we go. 
Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live in that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy and He loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, He gave us life when He raised Christ from the dead. It is by God's grace that you have been saved. For He raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Jesus Christ. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of what? Examples of perfection? No. Examples of what we achieve? No. Examples, he says, of the incredible wealth of his grace and his kindness towards us as shown in all that he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you he continues in verse eight, God saved you by His grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done, so no one can boast of it. For we, and I love this part, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things He planned for us long ago. And what does God want us to do? To testify to the grace of Jesus Christ. And what does God want from you? If you feel far away and unworthy and alienated from God, God wants you to come home God wants you to turn around. He says to you, just come on home. Just come on home. Don't have to get your life together. for. Come on home, God says. Get your life in my hands. I will make something of your life that you could never have dreamed of. Just come on home. And you will find a Father in heaven with open arms, no matter who you are or what you are have done. All you need to do is ask God and say, forgive me. All you need to do is commit your life into the hands of God. And I'd like us to do that now as we close. As I pray, as I close in prayer, I'd like to pray that prayer. And wherever you are, please take the opportunity, if you have never prayed this before, to pray this prayer with me. Commit your life to God today. Recommit your life to God today and just come on home. Let's pray. Father, would you forgive us for all that we have got wrong? Forgive us for going it alone. Father, we receive your forgiveness given in Jesus Christ. And right now, Lord, I, and I encourage you to pray this with me, right now, Lord, 
I commit my life into your hands so that you could be my God, so that I could be your child. Fill me with your Spirit. Raise me up and make me into the person that you want me to be. I thank you for all that you have done for me. In Jesus' name. Amen.